0: Hello there, and welcome to Not The Farmer's Wife podcast. I'm CJ Steedman, and I'm definitely not the farmer's wife. I am a mum, a partner, a full-time off-farm worker, and enthusiastically a lady farmer. On our farm, Mojo Homestead, we grow chickens, goats, cows, and bees. We practise regenerative agriculture and holistic management. If, like me, you love all things farming and homesteading, and if you'd like to learn from the female farmer's perspective then I'd love to have you along for the ride. So let's get farming. G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of Not the Farmer's Wife. I'm CJ and I'm your host if we haven't met before. Uh, And wow, what a month we are having here. (laughs) Before we get into today's topic, which is bees and other pollinators, because I do love myself some bees, um, before we get into that, uh, if you aren't already following us on social media, go along to either Mojo Homestead on any of the socials or not the farmer's wife. And on Instagram, that's uh, not full stop, the farmer's wife or lowercase. Um, and have a look at some of the videos I've been uploading regarding our uh, of our beautiful baby goats. We are well and truly into Baby Goat Birthing Month with six kids born already and uh, I have got videos of them all over the <laughs> all over the socials because who doesn't love watching baby goats, um, especially when they're practicing their special jumping and flicking out, you know, because they all think they're very, very cool. Uh, so we've been very lucky not to have lost any so far to date, touch wood, um, but we have everything uh pumping along nicely mums and bubs all doing well so go and check those videos out now into today's episode which is bees and other pollinators Uh, as most of you would know i am a beekeeper i I have uh at the moment i have six hives uh four of them are langstroth hives which are your standard normal beekeeping hive what the commercial beekeepers use Uh, with normal frames i don't have any flow hives um, and I also have two um, Kenyan top bar hives, which are a more natural form of beekeeping. Um, and I've got two of those. And uh, this year I am planning to expand and make some changes and clean some things up. I've got a lot of work to do in the bees this year. Um, the last couple of years, particularly our wet years, i kind of just let them pump along and do their thing. Uh, but this year we've got some changes, so keep your eyes peeled for that too. So, bees and other pollinators. Now, for those of you that are gardeners, you would know that without our lovely pollination friends, we'd be screwed. Our gardens would be completely fucked. And I have been in that situation where my garden has uh, you yeah, been pretty bad. <laughs> and I'll discuss hand pollination later. Uh, but uh, for those that aren't aware, here's I'm going to rattle off a list that I have prepared uh, of in Australia what I think is a fairly comprehensive list of the main pollinators so obviously we've got our European honeybee which is the kind of bee that we keep in our hives uh, we also have bumblebees they're not native to Australia um, or at least I don't think any species of them were uh, but they have been introduced and I have seen one once and they are the cutest little things ever they look like your typical cartoon bee with a big fluffy ass. Um, stingless bees, which I am fascinated by But unfortunately live in the wrong area Most of our stingless native bees in Australia um, Like a warmer climate than what I live in I can't really blame them uh, But I would love to have You can, you can actually keep stingless hives um, Where they do produce honey They just don't produce as much honey as uh, what our European honeybees do uh Blue banded bees, which I have seen before once, and it was so cute. I actually thought it was a fly, but it was a blue banded bee. Uh, carpenter bees, uh, which also are, are good contributors as far as pollination. Uh, solitary bees. I won't go into all the solitary bees. There's a whole bunch of different ones, but um, solitary bees uh, don't live in a hive. They just live in a, a basically some rotted timber or leaf matter or. Um, You see a lot of bee houses that people sell, which watch this space. Mojo Homestead is hoping to move into that as well, Um, where you can set them up in your backyard and encourage a bee to take up um, home in your own backyard. Um, Hoverflies, which, so it's not just bees that that are our pollinators. Hoverflies, butterflies and moths are both pollinators as well. Um, Birds certain types of birds like lorikeets are um, pollinators they'll go from flower to flower and introduce pollen from one to the other and there's a whole bunch of different flies as well including blowflies so as much as we hate blowflies and god knows we get enough of them here um (laughs) they're actually a useful pollinator so it's hard to hate them that much Um, ants pollinate as well they do it inadvertently usually by transporting things wind because that's how a lot of plants are actually pollinated is the wind picking up flowers or seeds or pollen from from one area and moving it to another bats believe it or not our fruit bats flying foxes are are able to help pollinate certain plant species uh, particularly those with larger night blooming kind of flowers and beetles beetles are also because they visit flower to flower they transfer um, pollen across um, when they're looking for nectar now the one that i haven't mentioned yet which is what i wanted to save till last is wasps now i don't know about you but i hate wasps (laughs) i've been stung so many times and i always react really badly to a wasp sting so i'm not a fan um I, I think i have a poster somewhere that you know has a picture of a honeybee and it says cute we love uh, a picture of a bumblebee and it says even cuter we love even more and then it has a wasp and it has this is a you know soul destroying you know kill it at all costs kind of thing uh but but we shouldn't really cuz wasps have their place in in the you know in our lovely diverse um environment and if you want to see something really interesting go and see how a fig flower is pollinated and turned into fruit Um, because it's very interesting it may turn you off eating figs forever Um, if you're vegan you probably won't want to eat a fig. Uh, but to me i think it just makes it amazing sense that this wasp has developed a way to go into the flower basically die and turn into a fig i think that's awesome anyway the handy helper won't be doing that because he's actually allergic to figs so we don't even have any figs here anyway they're the ones that that are our pollinators. so it's not just bees that we're talking about we're talking about all these other things um, and certainly um the solitary bee homes and bee and bat boxes are two items that I'm looking to stock on my Amazon store. So watch this space. I'll let you know if I get them in. I'm just trying to find the right supplier. I don't want to just buy cheap, crappy, nasty ones that are going to fall apart. Uh, I'd rather go the slightly more expensive and slightly more sturdy route. But we we have a lot of bats here on the farm. So I would like to get some bat boxes up and running. Uh, They have an awesome way of controlling mosquito populations. So I'm very keen to have them here. So, <clears throat> jumping right in, how do we attract and support our pollinators coming into our backyards? And and why do we do it? I mean, you know, we we want them there because they have a purpose to serve, but even wider than that and bigger than that, bigger than your own veggie garden, um, environmentally, it's a good idea to have pollinators doing what they know how to do. And so we want to encourage them to come into our backyard where possible. Now, please don't ever be afraid of um, of honeybees coming into your backyard. I've seen so many people in my beekeeping years, and you've got to remember, I've only been a beekeeper for five years. On the scheme of beekeeping, that is like still beginner level. But the number of people that I see that as soon as they see a bee, they go, oh, careful, it'll sting you. And that's just not true. <laughs> I go and stand next to my hives day in, day out, and do not get stung standing right next to their home. The only time I've ever been stung is when I am moving a hive and the hive hasn't been sealed up properly, which is in the case of my Kenyan top bar hives when I moved them. both the handy helper and I both copped stings. They were a nasty, cranky, starving band of bees and we brought them back to health, but they weren't happy about being moved. Um, Or when I go in to take honey when I go in and take frames out that's when I get stung and it's not that they're actually attacking me it's more that we come in contact in the wrong context so I might grab a hold of something that a bee is on that I haven't successfully brushed all the bees off and when I grab a hold of it the sting goes through my gloves now you can't get sting proof gloves I don't get what anybody says um you can get sting resistant gloves you can get gloves that are going to really 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 keep your hand as safe as it possibly can but you can't get sting proof so if you're handling bees you will get stung eventually um so getting them into our backyard early spring we're going to go through our seasons first early spring you want to plant early spring bloomers um you know our bulbs are, are a really good option for that and certainly for those of you that are visiting, visiting canberra during floriade which is our big flower festival um if you walk around floriade you will see how many bees are there and the bees are not stinging anybody they're just doing their thing pollinating and collecting nectar and pollen so early pollinators early flowers rather early bloomers for early spring for late spring Um, there's a whole bunch of other flowers that you can put in but there's also all of your veggies obviously as your veggies get growing um, then then that will increase and we'll talk about nectar and pollen in a sec but depending on what you plant depends on what you're giving the bees or the pollinators Uh, then summer obviously, um, summer blooming plants lavender is one that the bees just go nuts for and it does make a really yummy honey so it's certainly a good one for it as well Now, heading into fall, a lot of people um, in in colder climates like me, plants and gardens and things will fall off. But there is also a lot of um, late blooming plants that you can look at that will increase the chance of you giving those pollinators some much needed supplies right before they go into their winter lockdown. Um, Oh, one of the things I was going to say about early spring, for the area that I'm in, we have black wattle here. Um, which is a native australian plant and at the moment so where i'm recording this mid-september 2023 and at the moment every wattle tree for kilometers around me is in full blossom so the bees are just going crazy at the moment especially seeing as how we've just started hitting our warmer days um so most pollinators do go into a bit of hibernation over winter they will still go out they will still collect where there are pollen or um or nectar runs but for the most part they they bunker down in their hives if they live in a hive if they're a solitary bee they tend to hibernate so they'll go into um they'll build a mud hut basically around them and they'll go and sit in there and and see out the winter now some of them will die but in in their hibernation process they will lay eggs um, which will then develop into larvae and we end up with more lovely solitary bees the next summer or next spring so why do we need pollen and nectar for pollinator pollinators nutrition nectar is so for those that don't understand the difference nectar is the sugary liquid that's produced by the flowers and that gives most pollinators their primary energy source um, it gives them the ability to fly around and do what they do. It's their food, essentially. Uh, they carbohydrates, if you like. It's, it's, you know, a real energy thing. Whereas pollen contains their proteins and their other essential nutrients. Um, bees in particular collect pollen as a protein source for their developing larvae. So um, they take it back to the hive and it gets... Uh, converted chewed up and converted into what we call bee bread which is the food for bees um, so that's the difference between nectar and pollen so what we want to do is try and in our backyards we want to try and can create a continuous bloom cycle um, and in doing that when i say continuous obviously in a lot of areas over winter there's not going to be a lot of things blooming but if you can have blooming from early spring all the way through to late fall then you, your pollinators in your area are going to love you for that. Um, that's the perfect situation for them. And certainly um, plant diversity goes a long way towards doing that. Um, and that, that's part of the reason why um, in a native environment you have different plants that, that blossom and bloom over different months because nature is trying to provide that plant diversity across the seasons. So you want staggered bloom times. Now that could be done by you planting out your veggies at certain times and then doing a late, a mid planting and then a late planting in your cycle, in your season. Um, But it could also be by planting different plants um, that um, blossom and um, produce pollen and nectar at different times of the year. Um, succession planting is another way that you can do that by, you know, getting, you know, having flowers in, and then having your next lot. If you if you've got a non-veggie garden, have flowers in, then have a different lot of flowers ready to start blooming by the time the first lot are dying off. Um, deadheading, uh, if you haven't heard that term, that's removing the spent flower off the plants. Uh, that also encourages new bloom. So where it might look like a plant has finished blooming for that season um if you deadhead it lavender is a good one that i can think of that that it's a good example of um you deadhead lavender lavender and it just blooms back up and comes back to life again um so that's a good one to do to to get it going and if you can overlap if you can get plants that are overlapping over that cycle then that's obviously awesome and the best choice um, to keep those pollinators really really happy now uh As an example of which ones are nectar-rich and which ones are pollen-rich, nectar-rich flowers, for example, include, um, I can never say it, salvia, (laughs) Um, bee balm, coneflowers. They'll also encourage butterflies and birds and things like that. Uh, Nectar-rich vegetables, which is my favourite thing, because while I love a good flower garden, my garden is very, very functional, (laughs) and so there's mostly veggies in it um so for your nectar rich veggies you're looking at zucchini cucumbers pumpkins and squash uh, melons are another good one they having having a wide range of those in the garden will give that nectar to give that the bees and the pollinators that fuel that they need to do their things pollen producers so that they've got food to take back to their hive um you're looking at with it with your flowers you're looking at sunflowers asters daisies which is why i love it when people don't mow their lawns and just have complete grass it's so nice when you see little daisies coming up through the grass and i think oh the bees will be loving that and certainly outside the moment in our around our kidding pen there is daisies everywhere and i just had the baby goats out for their little stretch for the day out in the grass and all I kept thinking was, God, don't get stung by a bee, because they're fine, it won't hurt a goat to get stung by a bee, but it will make them swell up a little bit. They look a bit like a dog when they get stung with their lip all swollen. Um, so pollen-producing veggies, my favourites are, and these are the, because these are the real food sources for our pollinators. Tomatoes, uh, it makes, they make both nectar and pollen, but their pollen is awesome. Uh, peppers, so uh, capsicums, peppers for Americans, capsicums for us Australians. Um, they produce a lot of pollen, which is great for, for bees. Eggplants, which I've tried growing a few times and I, I managed to grow those tiny little ones, but I can never grow the really big ones. Uh, but they they also have pollen and nectar. Uh, squash and pumpkins, um, which have these plants, their plants, and we'll talk about this later, about the male and female flowers, and... Um, uh, so they're really good for bees as well. And oh my God, squash and male and fem- female flowers. We'll talk about it later. Um, and cucumbers, uh, also they're, they're a nectar and a pollen. So if you could grow tomatoes, um, what do we say? Tomatoes, eggplants, and cucumber, your pollinators are going to absolutely love you because they're going to have the best of both worlds. Uh, now obviously... Fragrant fragrant, fragrant flowers, I can't say it, say it 10 times quick. Fragrant flowers um, are really awesome for drawing the pollinators into your yard. So some flowers you'll notice don't have that big a scent, but if you can have a couple of plants with some really fragrant flowers on them, so um, lavender, rosemary, that type of thing, that will draw a lot of pollinators into your yard. So then once they're in there, then they'll go and collect pollen and nectar from other plants that are in your yard, just makes it a bit more friendly environment for them. Uh, Now, uh, you can also choose flowers and shrubs, getting away from veggies, um, but make sure that you go along that line of the continuous bloom, different colors, different flowers, uh, different smells are going to increase more pollination animals coming into your yard. Uh, but it also, what I love about it is that it will build re- resilience in your yard. So if you have just vegetables or just flowers, um, that's never going to be as good as if you go that really diverse kind of range of, of plants. So you have a fruit tree, you can have a nut tree because they almonds, oh my God, I think almonds are one of those ones which we'll discuss later. Need a male and a female. Um, uh, but veggies, flowers, fruit tree, if you had all of those plus your natives with you know beautiful um, flowers on them that that we have here in Australia, that would be awesome for all your pollinators. So one thing that you really do need to um, consider is pesticides, and pesticides can just absolutely wipe out our pollinators. In Australia, at the moment, we're currently going through a varroa mite crisis. Um, we did not have varroa mite up until I think it's about 18 months ago now, and Varroa mite has made its way to Australia, came in on a shipping on a shipping vessel on a container. A nest came in that had varroa mite. And since then we have been struggling to try and stop the flow and try and stop the Varroa spreading. Um, I think we've lost the battle. I think um, DPI, the Department of Primary Industries, hasn't said it yet, but I'm pretty sure we're at a point now where we have lost the battle. It came into a port in Newcastle. It's now within New South Wales. There are probably about 20 spots around the state where there is Varroa mite. Um, And the problem is when there's Varroa mite and the current um, system that the Australian government's taking on it is to burn any beehives that have been tested as positive to varroa mite but also any beehives that fall within the red zone and i can't recall the exact number of kilometers but it's basically within five to ten kilometers if you are within that zone of where a beehive hasn't been identified with varroa they're burning all the beehives they're just locking the bees in and burning them not testing them so you could have no varroa mite in your hive oh well they They are testing them, I shouldn't say that, but the testing is irrelevant if you fall within the red zone. Uh, Then outside of the red zone is the purple zone. If you fall within the purple zone, then you have to do a lot more monitoring, a lot more testing, um, and they are watching very intently. But the problem is our red zones have gone from just a little area of Newcastle to 20 different areas, I think Orange, um, up near Kempsey, um, Newcastle, all the way down to Sydney, almost all of Sydney now is is impacted, um, and there's also spots where they allowed commercial beekeepers to move their hives. There's now spots down on the border between New South Wales and Victoria, so it has spread far and wide. Now, the only reason I mention all that is because um, not having um, pollinators in your area is going to impact you so if you live in an area where you are noticing there's not a lot of bees just have a look on that on the department of primary industries in australia varroa might map and it will show you where they've had to basically kill all the bees which is just devastating okay I, I hate even just saying the words makes me feel sick so but pesticides pesticides kill bees and uh there are several different ways they can do that one is direct poisoning which i've had experience with myself where uh the local council despite my signs up outside my yard saying uh, please do not use poisons in this area as you know there's a beehive on site and it was a registered beehive they knew exactly where it was they went ahead and sprayed for weeds on the roadside now it was too close to my house And that meant that I ended up losing, it was probably about 250, 300 bees that died literally at the front of my hive. Um, So that's direct poisoning um, from pesticides. Uh, Then there's the sublethal poisonings. So pesticides that don't actually kill the the pollinator, but will impair its ability to forage, navigate, reproduce. So in in essence, it's a slap in the face. It's doing some damage. Um, So that's another way of doing it. But the other issue with pesticides is that it can eliminate the plants that pollinators are relying on for food. So when they poison these weeds on the side of the road, um, you know, and and they are weeds, and yes, they may need to be taken care of in certain areas, but by poisoning them, they poison everything in that area. It's very hard to spot poison. So they poison everything in that area. So your daisies and things like that that aren't really weeds, aren't really causing any trouble, um, they might be a primary source of food for the bees and pollinators in that area and they're gone because they've been poisoned. Uh, So alternatives to chemical pesticides. The best thing, and I love it, it's a saying that comes from permaculture circles and I don't know whether Bill Mollison said it or somebody else, but... You don't have too many pests. You have not enough predators. And nothing could be truer when it comes to preventing the use of pesticides in your garden. So having beneficial insects who are clever enough to go and feed off all those nasty pests that we don't want in our yards. And um, the beneficial insects are things like ladybugs, lacewings. um, I can never say this, parasoidal wasps um, to manage the pest population using them instead of, um, pesticides. It's, it's biologically the right way to go, but we just don't do it. And a lot of people don't know about it. Another way is, um, organic or natural products. So things like neem oil, uh, diatomaceous, I can never say that word either. Diatomaceous, I'm struggling with all words today. Diatomaceous earth, Or insecticidal soap, so things like making up like a garlic and um, laundry liquid spray um, to control aphids and things like that. There's other ways that you can get around it without doing your pesticides. And of course, for those that are really into their gardens and way more experienced and knowledgeable than me, um, companion planting. You know, there's so many different plants that you can plant alongside of other plants that will stop those pests coming in. and that means you don't have to use the pesticides, which means your lovely beneficial uh, insects and your bees and other pollinators will all come into your garden and love you to death. So one of the best ways of doing that is to really monitor your pest populations. And that means spending time out in your garden, which, hello, no-brainer, how good would that be? I would set up a table and chair out there, and if I had the internet out there, I'd sit out there and do all my my online work sitting in my garden I love it out there Um, monitoring your your garden for signs of pests and any damage because you may not see the pest you might see the damage they leave behind then using regenerative practices like crop rotation um proper watering to make sure that you're not encouraging kind of um, sluggish moldy conditions um, and ensuring soil health because a good soil health will make a good plant, a good healthy plant, and a good healthy plant is much better at fighting off pests. Um, mechanical controls like um, uh, row covers and um, hand picking the pests off the animal when off the plant when you see them—that's a gold one as well. Um, we, I certainly in the past have used cabbage moth, <laughs> cabbage moth decoys so it's basically a white butterfly or moth that um or it's it's a pest to a certain uh it's a it's a predator sorry to a certain pest that gets onto your cabbages and you stick the pretend one that's stuck on a metal rod in the ground next to your cabbages and it's supposed to stop them getting to it and it certainly did it worked so i I like that kind of method um and then, of course, there are some pesticides that you may need to use. But at this stage in my garden, I have never used a pesticide. Very proud of it. And, you know, it, we may not have had the best and fanciest crop every year. There might have been a few blemishes on things. And, you know, maybe we didn't get as many uh, fruit or vegetables as what we were planning. But I still like the fact that we haven't had to use it. Um, and then, of course by doing all this encouraging of bees and pollinators, you're going to, by default, encourage those beneficial insects. Now, the beneficial insects, I I love. We had, um, on the small farm, we had an orchard that had lots of apple trees. And we had a huge problem with codling moth. Um, The people that had lived there before us had essentially just let the fruit drop on the ground and rot. And that is a crisis in itself. But that was a way of encouraging the pests because they had a food source. So obviously not letting fruit drop to the ground and just rot is a good one. But the coddling moss was already there when we got there. So I uh, bought a sheet of parasitic wasps larvae. And when I say a sheet, it's like a paper sheet and it's got the larvae stuck on it. It's like they've imprinted it into the paper and you stick it to your tree. So we just stapled the paper to the tree, essentially. And the wasps hatched out of the paper in the right you put it at the right time and they hatched. And they eat, I think they eat the coddling moth. Or they they do something to the coddling moth. And it just wiped out the coddling moth problem. Seriously, we had some really awesome apples that year. It was, I could not believe how quickly it worked. Uh, there was no need to kind of have like multiple years of this to to kill the codling moth. They just wiped it out within the space of a couple of months. So I was pretty impressed with that. So you've got your natural predators, uh, which are the beneficial uh, insects uh, that prey on the on the pests. So like your ladybugs, for example, they'll feed on aphids um, and mealybugs, things like that. Um, then you've got your biological balance, which is you know ensuring that your... Uh, Soil is healthy, that you've got the right structures up. You might do your companion planting, Um, having that kind of environment that's your biological balance. So, natural predators, biological balance, and all those wonderful insects come into your yard and will do their thing. Now, there are a couple of others I've got a list here. So, the ladybugs will feed on aphids, scale insects, and mealybugs, lacewings. I don't even know what lacewings are, I've got to be honest. Isn't that interesting? They, um, they consume aphids, spider mites, and caterpillar larvae. Here you go, lacewings. I like you. I hate caterpillars. I mean, I'm sure they have a purpose. I just don't want them in my veggie garden. Um, You're yeah, uh, parasoidic, parasoidic wasps, which lay their eggs or on or inside the pest insects eventually killing them off. Huh. And that's, So that's what they were doing with the coddling moth. Laying it, I think they were taking over where they would lay their larvae. They would lay their eggs and their larvae would eat the coddling moth. Awesome. Love the way it works. Um, and then your predatory beetles. Uh, that'll kill things like aphids, caterpillars and beetle other beetle larvae. Um, and obviously we've already discussed having that plant diversity and avoiding pesticides are a great way to get those beneficial insects into your garden. Now, I'll discuss some other things further down um, later on. We'll talk about um, habitat encouragement uh, for different uh, beneficial um, pollinators and and insects. Uh, But I wanted to briefly talk about the different pollination methods because, oh my God, as a non-gardener, it took me a little while to get my head around this. So self-pollination versus cross-pollinating plants and I'm gonna try and explain it. Self-pollinating is when the flower's reproductive structure makes the transfer of the pollen from the male parts to the female parts within the same flower. So that means that all of the things are in the one flower. The, the flower it's, can pollinate itself and turn into a fruit or a vegetable. Cross-pollination is when there are, you have your plant growing, and I'll use the example of say um, uh, zucchini, um oh no it was button squash i think because that was the one that i had the issue with button squash and on the same plant you will have a flower that is a male flower and a flower that is a female flower and they need something to assist them in transferring pollen from one flower over to the other flower in order to cause the pollination to happen and a fruit or a vegetable to develop Now that assistance can be from wind, insects, birds, other animals, or manually from humans. So self-pollinating plants first, because they are way easier. Your self-pollinating plants are things like tomatoes. Uh, Tomatoes, the flower has male and female parts within the same flower, and that allows for self-pollination. A little bit of a shake or a little bit of a wind breeze can assist with loosening things up in there so that it all works. Uh, Peas um, are definitely a a self-fertilizer and beans are also um, a self-fertilizer. So, But again, all those plants can benefit from a little light breeze or a little bit of shaking and that will cause everything to kind of mix where it's meant to. So cross-pollinating plants, apart from my loveless squash or button squash, um, which (laughs) if you'd seen me out there trying to work out which is the male flower, which is the female flower, and then you yeah, do doing my thing with the male flower to get it across to the female flower. It's crazy. But apple trees are a cross pollinator. So they require um, usually bees to go from one flower to another flower and therefore cross pollinating. Uh, squash, obviously, are another one. Um, so button squash, zucchini, things like that. Uh, blueberries require cross pollination. And the interesting part about that is I read a study only a couple of months ago that Um, blueberries, bees don't like blueberries like your normal European honeybee luckily bumblebees are a super super effective pollinator of blueberries who would have ever thought anyway so blueberries you get your fruit because some bumblebee goes from one plant to another plant and does the whole let's get jiggy with it Um, so how to identify plants that need cross pollination well some people are very clever and have an awesome botanical knowledge I'm not one of them uh, so female uh, flower structure can be a way that you can tell whether or not you have a cross-pollination or a self-pollination. So when you look at the flowers, if you have some flowers that look very different, um, so different parts, and please don't ask me to explain the full details, I would say Google it because that's what I had to do when I was looking for it, because each different plant is has a different shape and a different size to its flower. But if two flowers on the same plant look completely different on the inside, when you look at the inside makeup of them, then chances are it's a cross pollinator. If like a tomato plant, you look at it and every single flower looks identical to the other flowers, then that means that you have one that is self pollinating. Um, Obviously, like I said, if you've got awesome botanical knowledge, well, good for you. I'm so jealous, um, but <laughs> but you would know which ones are self pollinating and, and cross pollinating. Um, uh, another good one to do is to watch for your pollinators in your yard. If they are going from flower to a flower and back again uh, within the same plant, then there's a good chance they're trying to cross pollinate. Which is they because they're such clever little things, they know exactly what to do. Um, and obviously research like I say google that shit because man when I was trying to get my but this is before I had bees I should add before I had bees and I was trying to get cross-pollination happening oh what a nightmare and this takes us on to my next topic which is hand pollination so hand pollination is necessary when you don't have a natural pollinator or they're scarce and your plants are flowering but they're not setting fruit so the fruit is not developing it's just a flower there and no fruit coming out of the other side. Now there's lots of reasons for it um, but the main ones and unfortunately this is why I mentioned the Varroa mite crisis there'll be certain areas within New South Wales at the moment where if you live within those areas you are going to find that you have a very very low pollination presence in your area. So Check if you live in Sydney, if you live in Newcastle, Kempsey, down on the border of of Victoria and New South Wales, out at Orange, chances are you're going to be having some problems with pollination this year. So um, limited pollination presence is the number one one. Controlled breeding is another one for hand pollination, why you have to go to hand pollination. Now that could be that you've got two different plants, and this is for my groovy little full-time gardeners, um, two different plants, and you want to cross them over. So, say a tomato, and you've got a really good tomato here, and a really good tomato here, and you want to breed those two tomatoes together to make the hopefully the best qualities of each come through into the into the baby plant. So, controlled breeding would be a way why you would do hand pollination. Low fruit set, which is when the flowers are abundant, but the fruit production is low, which is what I was having the problem with and the fact that I didn't have a lot of bees at that time. Uh, and protect, protected environments. So if you're building, if you're growing only in a greenhouse or an indoor garden, then it might make it hard for natural pollinators to get in. And so you might have to look at hand pollination in that, in that circumstance. Now, how do you hand pollinate? How do you make two flowers have sex? It's hmm, interesting. So I never thought of it, about it that way, but that's exactly how it is. So you, first of all, need to determine whether or not you have um, male and female plow- flowers. And then the best time to do it, they say, is usually in the morning when the flowers have just opened and the pollen is most visible. I They say use a small brush online, but I used a cotton bud because that's all I had to hand. So a cotton bud, and I literally brushed the antlers, uh, which is the pollen producing part of the flower, to pick up the pollen, and then I moved the cotton bud into the female and rubbed it on, and it's the stigma in the flower that's the female part. And I rubbed it and brushed it all over that and I did that a couple of times and I did it for a couple of days. And lo and behold I started getting button squash, no dramas. Of course much much easier than that was I went and got myself a beehive and then my garden went hell for leather and I have fruit and plants everywhere Uh, but that is one way that you can hand pollinate if need be again a little bit of a shake of some plants is enough to to you know the wind is enough I think corn rely on wind in order to do that Uh, but if you have to do it you have to do it so yeah now, habitats for our pollinators. This is, I think this is nearly my last. Let me have a look at my list. I know I've got a couple other things, but, but your habitat. Habitat is really important. So, and I say this uh, in relation to in inviting bees into your backyard. Um, there's some gardens you can refer to as bee lines, which is a pathway like of, of plants. So a line of plants that encourage pollinators without any obstacles. So having uh, say a hedging or a bordering around the property where they can just go from, pl- from flower to flower, completely unhindered and without having to go around or have a gap in between the garden beds. Uh, plant clustering, having, having clusters of plants that are the same type of plant, um, it makes it easier for the, for the pollinator to go and collect all the pollen from that one particular plant and do its cross-pollination if it needs to in that case. Uh, layered planting so different heights uh, because depending on the weather and the day bees will um, come out and they'll zone to a certain height but then if they can climb upwards instead of if there's gaps if they go upwards instead of across it makes it easier for them to do what they need to do um, seasonal blooms we've talked about yes planting something from early spring through to late fall if you can that that's blossoming then we need to look at their nesting sites so we talked about bee houses earlier now bee houses are essentially just a really protected little space um, that is they're able to go in and do their thing and it'd be solitary bees like mason bees or leaf cutter bees that that would tend towards a bee house um, they should be in a relatively sunny area but a sheltered area so not sopping wet all the time not blowing a gale that kind of thing and nice and stable and secure so if you've got it hanging from a tree make sure that it's like really wedged in there it's not going to fall off um allowing um your garden to have some wild areas like i said don't have to have grass everywhere have some daisies coming up through the grass they love it but also too if you've got any dead wood so people that are on a couple of acres or you know bigger than an urban block if you can have a little area where you have some you know, old timber piled up. You see them sometimes on farms, they have old timbers piled up and that's because they're trying to increase increase that biodiversity in their fields where animals, other animals that are important to natural habitats can grow and nest and live without being obstructed or without being damaged. Um, also offering nesting materials around areas like that, like mud, leaves, twigs, you know, not cleaning everything perfectly clean. Um, If you have no area where there's mud, you can even put out a little shallow container with some mud or clay in it, which really encourages those ground nesting bees. Uh, Wood piles, we talked about there. And that's good for not just for bees and things, but for ladybugs and wasps and things like that. Now, water. Water is really important. Bees have to have water. All insects need water. Um, so, the best thing that we can do is to give them a water feature that they won't drown in. <laughs> and unfortunately, bees aren't great swimmers. So, a shallow water source, something like a bird bath with some little pebbly rocks you know, the pebbles that you get, the rocks that you get to put in the bottom of a, a vase so that it looks pretty down the bottom. That kind of thing just across the bottom of the bird bath and then topped up with water. And it gives them an ability to come and land on those pebbles, drink some water without getting drowned. Um, yeah. And if it's got a fountain or anything, just make sure that you've got the, the pebbles and things away from the fountain, because sometimes the splashing water can be too much for those insects and they can get too much water on them and then they can't fly off. Uh sheltered areas within your um garden so that even in adverse weather they can still get out and about my bees do not make an appearance when it's pissing down rain (laughs) and they, they don't make much of an appearance through winter but when it's pissing down rain and windy they're not coming out they they only come out if they absolutely have to uh we talked about native plantings it's really good just from a biodiversity perspective um having having a diverse range of plants in your backyard is always going to be good, uh, not just for your bees, but for all of those beneficial insects. Um, habitat diversity, you know, having trees, shrubs, small plants, grasses, it just means that any pollinator, it doesn't matter, you're not targeting a specific pollinator, you can have them come in anywhere. And obviously, no chemicals. And if need be, go around and knock on your neighbor's doors and say, look, I'm trying to encourage the number of um, yeah, beneficial insects and, and pollinators into my backyard. If you're going to be spraying, could you let me know just so that I'm aware? Just to raise that awareness with them that, you know, if they're spraying chemicals all over their gardens, it's probably not real good for them. But B, it's definitely not real good for our, um, our friendly insects. Um, so we, I think we've covered just about everything. Just let me have a look. Yeah. Oh, now the only other thing I did want to touch on, and this again goes back to the Varroa mite issue. So uh, with Varroa mite, obviously the people that live in those zones, I feel very sorry for you. And, you know, I hope that this crisis can get sorted real soon particularly my heart goes out to the beekeepers who've already lost hives in those areas um the idea of somebody coming into my property and locking sealing up all my hives and burning my bees i reckon i would be so devastated i wouldn't yeah i wouldn't know how to respond i have no words so um things that you need to do to work out whether or not there's an issue with pollination in your area is look for unusual behavior So if you see bees commonly coming into your yard and they're they're not flying, they're not doing their pollination, they're not going from flower to flower, they're just sitting on rocks and things like that. Now, sometimes bees are just dying. They don't have a huge lifespan, a couple of weeks. So um, sometimes they are just dying. But if you're seeing more than one or two at a time doing that, chances are something's going on that's causing pollinator stress or disease in, in your area. Uh, reduced numbers would be the same, except of course, obviously, if you live in a virile mite area at the moment, you are probably going to notice a hugely reduced number of pollinators, uh, but also visible symptoms. So one of the things that I didn't know until I had bees was when they get poisoned, they have a proboscis at the front of their mouth, nose, that helps them to collect their nectar. And that when they're poisoned, that sticks out and it looks just like a little tongue sticking out of the bee. So if you see a lot of bees in your area and it looks like they've got a tongue sticking out the front of them, um, then chances are there's poison being used in the area. So that's a a problem for pollinators' health. Um, And we've discussed, I think that's just about everything else. The only other thing I can suggest to you is if you are keen to get into beekeeping, um, it is an absolutely awesome hobby. Um, I would strongly encourage you to find a local beekeeping society in your area. And participate in a course. They it's coming into spring now here in Australia for us. So for us, it's prime time for going to learn about bees uh, because this is when we are opening our hives and checking them and checking their health and collecting honey and doing all the things. Uh, For my US friends or Northern Hemisphere friends in England or or America or in Europe, um, it's going into your winter season over there. So unfortunately, this is probably not prime time for you to go and learn about it unless you're in one of the very, very southern states. Um, but uh, certainly prepare your backyard, get it ready and then come spring next year, go and do a course and get yourself a hive. Now, as I said, I don't have flow hives here. I only have normal Langstroth hives and my Kenyan top bar hives. That's not for any other reason other than I can't afford flow hives. Um, If you are somebody who's only gonna have one beehive, you're in an urban environment, you're just gonna have the one hive in your backyard, I honestly can see no reason why you would not get a flow hive. Um, the amount of money that I have spent on extraction equipment to be able to extract honey out of the frames that I have in my Langstroth, uh, you could use that money to buy a flow hive and you'd be much better off. And then when you wanted, when you do want to extract honey, it's a really simple process. You don't need any special equipment. Uh, so if you're interested in doing that, reach out to me. Um, if you can't find... Um, who can help you with it or if you're not sure what kinds of things you should be looking for reach out to me i've been uh, a member of both our yes our local yes um beekeeping group which i love and also a canberra beekeepers group because that's the nearest major city for me and that's where i did my course when i first started but reach out and ask me any questions that you might have about bees. I'm more than happy to help out. I, Like I say, five years in, I'm still considered a beginner in beekeeping circles. But I definitely have learned very hands-on experience. Beekeeping is a on-the-job learning kind of thing. Um, and the best way you can do it is by observing opening your hives having a look finding the queen looking for for baby bees looking to see how much bread they've got how much nectar they've got stored up how much honey is in there checking all of those things looking for the diseases in there like actively looking um, luckily hopefully touch wood not finding them but looking for them things like a small hive beetle knowing what they look like You learn that by being hands-on. So even if you don't think you can have bees yourself, maybe reach out to one of the local beekeeping clubs and see if somebody would like to take you on as a mentor and you can go and help them with their hive. It's always better to have an extra set of hands every time you open a hive. So I can't encourage you enough to do that. Um, And obviously... Keep an eye on the socials that I put out because as we get into spring, more into spring, um, I'll be opening up all my hives and having a look and I'll try and video most of it. I'm sure people just are fascinated by what's inside hives. Certainly the people I speak to are always asking me about them. Uh, So I'm more than happy to video them so that I can get that across to you. Now, I also want to say that I, and I'm hoping it's going to be ready this week, I'm putting out a new freebie that I want to give out to people. I already have my backyard chicken keeping guide, uh, which if you haven't already got, wwwmajorhomesteadnet forward slash seven must knows. And it gives you seven things you really need to know before you get backyard chickens. Now, if you've already got your backyard chickens, go and download it anyway. There might be something on there that you haven't thought about that you, you know, has a bit of a light bulb moment for you and you go oh shit forgot about that but oh i better get on and fix that up uh so i'm putting out another freebie and this one's going to be about bees and it's going to be about what you need to know before you start getting a beehive in your backyard and it's going to be uh www.mojohomestead.net forward slash bees b-e-e-s 101 so bees 101 And you'll be able to download a guide there that will tell you the things that you need to consider before you move to that next stage of beekeeping where you get yourself a hive for your backyard. Anyway, let me know what you think. And otherwise, I will see all you lovely folk um, next week when I think I don't even, can't even remember what we're talking about next week, but we're talking about something to do with birth month. So we'll talk then. All right, bye for now, everyone. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you did, I'd be so grateful if you left me a review. I would also absolutely love it if you tagged me in your next post on your favourite socials at either Not the Farmer's Wife or Mojo Homestead. And don't forget to get your free guide to backyard chicken keeping at www.mojohomestead.net backslash 7mustknows. And remember, grow the life you want to live. See ya.